You're listening to the Quince podcast. Welcome to season 2 of the Quince Fortnightly podcast Land of a Billion. We aim to bring you expert conversations about the most contentious of the holy roti kapda makan trinity that is the makan over our heads and the larger ecosystem that governs it. This podcast is produced in association with the Property Rights Research Consortium supported by Omidya Network India. I'm Bhargavi, a researcher interested in land and access to finance and your host for this season. Most people complain that there are way too many land laws in India. But what does it even mean when we use the word land laws? I mean the graphic picture that comes to my mind is an amorphous body of many many laws depending on who you are, what age you are, where in India you are. So for example if you're a home buyer the first land law that comes to mind is the regulatory development authority act right which is the law that governs the relationship between you and your developer. If you're a farmer perhaps laws that come to mind are agricultural tenancies or agricultural land sealings laws. If you're a developer laws that come to mind are the zoning and town planning laws. If you're an infrastructure firm perhaps a land acquisition law comes to mind and if you're within the government or if you're a civil servant definitely the law that comes to mind is the land revenue code. In short there are way too many land laws in India and some of them actually date back to the early 20th century. They vary from state to state and even within the same state they often vary within regions. How does a layperson make sense of them? How many of them are actually enforced by whom and against whom? And most importantly, what story do they tell us about India? To answer these questions, we have with us Dr. Namita Wahi, who is the founder and director of Land Rights Initiative, which is a pioneering initiative in the field of land policy in India. She has worked extensively on land and property rights in India and has contributed significantly to the scholarship on land laws in India. Dr. Wahi is all set to launch the Mill database, which is a repository of all land-related legislations in India. We also have with us Nitin Sethi who is a journalist and a partner and editorial advisor at Land Conflict Watch which is a pan India organization that systematically researches land conflicts in India with the aim of facilitating better decision making. Most people including me know Nitin as a fantastic investigative journalist who has for many years been researching on political economy, natural resources, environment and development. Welcome Nitin and Namita to the Land of a Billion podcast. Thank you so much, Bhargavi, for having us as part of this. Thank you, Bhargavi. Thank you, Nitin, for being a part of this conversation. Great. So, you know, most economic historians have actually recorded that prior to maybe about 1855, there were no sort of land laws. There is no recorded history of land laws. Of the territory that was then India, right? And today we are in a very different position. And like I mentioned, there is a plethora of laws, and nobody knows. how to make sense of all of them so namita how did how did we come to be in this position how has the legal and regulatory framework governing land developed over the years in india so i i wouldn't say that there were no laws before 1850 uh, you know because we do have under the british rule we have the first legislation which really overturned the lives of uh, people in the region which is the permanent settlement regulation of 1793 
And before that, you know, every administration has had a very complex system of land revenue regulations. So we had that under the Mughals, the Marathas, you know, all the all the rulers that we've had. I think land being the most important source of uh, livelihood, being a resource, not just an economic resource, but something which is so central to individual and community identity, history, and culture is something that has been the subject of the state's preoccupation and the people's preoccupation for the last centuries. But what we have seen is that there are the colonial state's objective with respect to land, which was to maximize revenue from the land, led to a certain kind of legislation that was initiated, and also to appropriate as much resources as possible. So we have a series of laws pertaining to that. And in post-independent India, we have different motivations. We have a motivation, in the at least in the 50s and the 60s, to bring about land reforms, to actually reverse the historical injustices that were perpetrated during British rule. And so we have a series of land reform legislation, including abolition of zamidari, tenancy reform, land sealing and redistribution legislation. And then we also have, you know, legislation as India urbanized that, as you mentioned in the beginning, that, you know, we have a series of legislation that comes in about uh, imagining urban India, which includes a number of municipality laws, uh, which give a lot of powers to municipal bodies in urban areas to deal with both land acquisition and land use, as well as within rural India. And as uh, the country has progressed in that way, we've had a series of infrastructure development laws, uh, regulatory development authorities that have been set up. We have uh, laws that have specifically created bodies that can, you know, acquire lands for highways and, you know, dams and other infrastructure projects that are necessary for India. So that explains the widespread nature and, you know, variety of land legislation. And the fact of the matter is that land is a state subject in India. So it was also a provincial subject during British rule and it was continued to be a state subject in the post-independent period, as a result of which each state, and it's also a subject in the concurrent list. So we have said, so because it is a subject in the state list, so every state can has the primary responsibility to legislate with respect to land. And that makes sense, right? Because land is different in different parts of the country. But we also have a number of central laws relating to land. And so we have this layered regulatory framework, where sometimes on the same subject or the same area or the same geography or the same region, we have different legislation that apply that have been enacted at different points of time by different bodies, and that give different powers to different administrative bodies. So there is not just a overlapping uh, legislation uh, layer that is happening, there's also overlapping responsibilities of administrative bodies. And that is what leads to this complex regulatory framework with respect to land in India. Thanks. That's fantastic. And I completely agree with you. I mean, not just India, right? Everywhere in the world, land is a local subject. Land is really governed locally. And maybe therefore land laws everywhere in the world are actually as confused, no matter the state of development of a country. And while this regulates a lot of the relationships between the state and her citizens, I wonder how this really affects the nature of conflicts, right? So Nitin has been following land conflicts over many years. And what are your views? How do you think that this evolving nature of land legislations has shaped land conflicts in India? So Bhakavi, I would, I mean, one of the strands I keep thinking about when we look at land conflicts or land and resource related conflicts is the matrix in which the relationship and the sharing of powers between the center and the state have happened over 
how land shall be governed, how revenue shall be earned, how the nature of land use will be altered and who will have the powers to alter it. To me, I see that one, there's a clear physical issue of the land itself because um, we know historically due to issues of caste and a very pernicious economic slavery that's perpetuated in the name of caste, there are many people who've been deprived of their land rights historically in India. Two, I find that the struggle for land is not related very often and the conflicts over land are not related to just, you know, the mud or the earth. It's very often related to the resources that are found growing on top or the resources that are found under that crust in some sense. And the mix of those is what causes immense amount of strains in our society. I would say fairly that there has to be some ranges of conflict which are much more than what we would see in a less diverse nation. The nature of our societies is so diverse and the use and the kind of stakeholders we have on every square inch of our land is so diverse that I think there is bound to be an inherent conflict in many cases, much more than there are in other developed parts of the world, I feel. But the navigation by the state of who shall appropriate what value of that resource? How would you distribute equitably those values across societal structures, across segments of society, across intergenerational and intragenerational needs of a country at large? I think that's where this matrix of complex laws, um, which sometimes seemingly suggests that panchayats may have control, but at the end, when you realize they are overridden by district administrations, overridden by political interests, and then another layer of overrides available even at the union government level very often. I remember what this leads to because, say, part of my own upbringing is in what's called India's Northeast. If you look at the concerns that keep rising up in Assam and other places, there are origins in how the land tenure and revenue systems of Assam were changed during the British era, which caused a different pattern of settling of societies. It caused a difference in how what was cultivated, when and where, and how migration moved in of different patterns in Assam. So I do agree with Namita and you that the nature and the relationship that we have as citizens, as society with our lands, and how the state modulates it using these laws has very wide repercussions. Unless you have a database of laws such as the one Namita's and her team has built, or you have data on the kind that perhaps if I may beat my own drum a little land conflict watch has, this allows us to look at longer trends of how conflicts are mapping us out, how it's changing us economically or impinging upon our right to develop economically as well as how it's impacting our socio-cultural relationships. The other element I think is essential for the nation state and therefore the government of different kinds to maintain that sense of a nation state is the ability to modulate relations built on land and economic power that emanates from people holding land. It's the original form of capital in some sense. And the labyrinth of Indian laws and the humongous numbers of Indian laws is in some sense reflection on how the state over different times has navigated either to maintain a status quo in these relationships or to try and alter them once in a while. And we can question whether these alterations are benign or in favor of certain more powerful stakeholders etc at different times. But 
it's a negotiating tool in the power in the hands of the state so you know so let me just pick up on some of these things so it seems to me that even if the labyrinth of laws were implemented in the most ideological and in the most let's just say perfect manner we would continue to deal with a bureaucracy because every law has its own bureaucracy so the citizen or the landowner or the land user or the land tiller is not just dealing with her neighbor on land disputes right they have to navigate the state they have to navigate the local bureaucracy they have to navigate the courts every time there's a dispute and as commercial transactions become more sophisticated they have to navigate you know uh, the service provider with so as consumers for example or as homeowners as home buyers i have to navigate the developer the real estate regulatory authority and then between all of this there is a group of people who are more sophisticated they have better access to information about all this and there is a larger perhaps group of people who don't have it some of it is represented through collective action and associations but a lot of it is not and how how do you ultimately you know reduce the information asymmetry that exists between the average person who wants to make the best use of her land and her resources and the state which is much more powerful when it comes to information or you know or more sophisticated information holders and uh in this context namita we you know how does your database really help people break down these information asymmetries if you could talk a, about a little bit about that that would be great thanks bhargavi as you know our constitution grandfathered the application of colonial laws unless they were specifically found to be violative of our fundamental rights so when you talk about the relationship of citizens and the state the fact of the matter is we were subjects of the british colonial rule and unfortunately even when we became citizens uh, you know when the constitution was adopted in 1950 because of this grandfathering of the colonial laws we pretty much remained subjects for a very long time you know within the statutory framework that was continued and you know coming to the mill database the reason why i started i embarked on this exercise is because as you both know and uh, perhaps others as well that we had produced a research report on land acquisition disputes 5 years ago so it was a report which looked at all disputes before the supreme court a study of uh, disputes over a 66 year time period but in doing so i realized there were just, there were 100 laws of just land acquisition across india and that just got me thinking that if there are 100 laws in land acquisition how many total land laws do we have and what areas do they apply to so this project was birthed then in uh, 2017 and we've been working on it for the last 5 years uh, we started out by looking at all central laws on land as well as we took a representative sample of eight states it was a geographically representative sample because we have punjab in the north gujarat in the west andhra pradesh and telangana in the south bihar and jharkhand in the east and assam and meghalaya in the northeast so that was the goal that can we get a representative sample geographically you know uh, can we get it legally when we put together the laws and i'm i can tell you that we found about 500 laws for just eight states and central laws which we've analyzed as part of this research and we've analyzed these laws across 30 categories the goal of this database is actually to help all stakeholders uh, like you said remove the information asymmetry and provide this information for everyone to use i mean the government doesn't know all the laws that there that are there people certainly don't know all the laws that are there lawyers don't know necessarily uh, unless they can access some paid archives i mean this is going to be a free resource for use for everyone students researchers people like us who to actually you know look at this area and its totality and see and identify trends over time and uh, hopefully paint a larger picture for the political economy of india and how it's changing 
Okay, that's fantastic, Namita. So, you know, in the conflict space, Nitin, how would you see this helping people who are actually involved in the conflict? Do you see them actually going to the database, accessing the law, understanding their rights better? What are some other usages of this database that you see? This is a, in some sense, a existential question we at Land Conflict at Watch have asked for ourselves for the last couple of years, at least saying, uh, you know, who's using this database? Is it of any larger public good or is it for a certain segment of society? At least with Land Conflict Watch, and I may by extension then say of the legal database that Namita and her team has built might also be true. We found at Land Conflict Watch that it's much value for people who are at an arm's length from the conflict itself. But we're trying to grapple with the ramifications, the consequences of those conflicts in particular segments at scales. The people who are actually and segments of society or communities which are involved in conflicts themselves, they, with less or more, depending on how powerful economically, politically those actors are, they grapple with not just law, but the use of law, the use of administrative powers and administrative laws. They deploy tactics inside and outside courts, which includes politics, which includes politics of protest. And their world is far more complex than what I think any database can capture. So I I believe databases have a particular use. It's not important that databases be used by everyone in every segment of society. I do think they provide a deep insight to eagle eye view the situation. Let me give you an example. I think I'm better off with anecdotes. The um, land acquisition, new LARR as it's called in abbreviation, the new land acquisition law and rehabilitation law was written by UPA. It was fantastic. There was this great debate going on about how, you know, so many elements of the colonial act will be undone. And there was a small line inside saying, if I remember correctly, saying the law will apply to most acquisitions except for these things called infrastructure, which are noted in a government notification of the finance ministry dated some some month of 2012. And I went back to look at that notification. I'm like, are we going to change the history of our relationship between the state and society and land based on a notification from the finance department? And I looked at it. It was a list of what is called infrastructure by the finance ministry to provide certain financial incentives. And that continues to be the exception that was carved in a supposedly a landmark law after 120 years of having a colonial legacy to live with. Now, the daily practitioners of uh, or the ones dealing with the consequences of these laws, I think, learn to navigate this very well because for many of them, either is business or survival. For many of us who are sit- sitting slightly far away, even an inch away from it, we come to the issue with a little naivety, a little bit of deeper theoretics and deeper understanding of practice. For us, I think this set of laws is very important to understand. Just to see them together, I would say not even if I was too lazy and actually ever read more than seven or ten, I hope I do, but if I don't, to know that there are these complex laws, administrative systems that are fighting each other and contesting against each other and that people are surviving between that to find value in the one asset they have, to monetize that value or to retain that asset in a certain way that they desire to. To me, that itself suggests the nature of political struggle and democratic struggle in India over resources. And I'm quite happy if if this database can serve that community and that service, if it can render well, I think it's already doing a great job. Everything else is a topper for me, frankly. 
But I let Namita respond to that better because I think she's the one who's crafted. I'm sure this she's seen many people talk about what else could happen with it. Yes, thanks. Nitin, uh, it was really helpful for me to hear about how you imagine the database is going to be used. And as always in conversation with you, I learn a lot. I think to add to to what you said, as, as I see it, I see like five, you know, five, six different groups of stakeholders that are going to benefit from the law. First of all, anybody who's interested in knowing about what laws apply to them in a particular state. I just want to emphasize here that it's not just a collection of laws. Each of the laws actually has a summary that someone can quickly look at uh, before they decide to actually go into the law. On top of that, all of the laws, like I said, have been categorized under various categories and have been organized by geography, by timeline, and by thematic subject area. And each category has several layers of subcategories. So I see ordinary people uh, of India using it. I think it's a very important resource for government. You know, like I said, even the government doesn't actually have this kind of data. I remember for our scheduled areas uh, report, we had, for the first time, we mapped scheduled areas in India. We created a map of scheduled areas. And even the Ministry of Tribal Affairs did not have a map of scheduled areas. We computed that there were 13% of India's geographical areas in the scheduled areas. The government didn't know this. So I think it will be a very important resource for the government of India, for the state governments. It will be a very important resource for local government. I, I know for a fact that this is going to be a very, very important resource for civil society groups who know, as Nitin said, they probably have better practical insights of what is going on than those of us who are sitting uh, a little bit uh, further away, even though we spend a lot of time working on these issues. Basically, the goal is to bring a holistic picture to all of this. So so I think it's going to be of great benefit to civil society groups. It's going to help provide, help, help them see things in comparative perspective, in his, historical perspective. It will help us see things over time. I think it's going to be of great uh, importance to researchers, working in the land uh, land space, but also in the larger political economy space, to historians particularly, you know, because the, the database covers the entire period of British rule and, 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 and till date. I think it's going to be a great benefit to uh, corporations and to the market in general, because, you know, a lot of times people come into a space uh, thinking the state has acquired their land, they've, or rather they've signed an MOU with the state, especially foreign uh, investments and foreign corporations. And, uh, you know, I often say this, that, uh, they, uh, you know, signing an MOU doesn't mean that a project is actually going to happen. Uh, but that often seems to be the naive assumption because the state says that, oh, we'll acquire this land. But the fact of the matter is that because they have not bothered to actually sort of negotiate with the people whose land is going to be taken away, if they have rights, they will go to the courts, they will go and dispute, which is why we have at Land Rights Initiative, we estimate that uh, in the Supreme Court, 25% of all litigation uh, over the last 70 years is land litigation, of which 30% was land acquisition litigation. Sure. Thanks, Namita. So, Nitin, you know, we know that you have been tracking the climate change related risks and what it brings and what it really means for the Indian economy, as well as for the government for a very long time. And how, how do we view climate change issues from the perspective of land governance? So what about land governance or land administration has to change to be able to take into account the rights of people who are most likely to be affected by climate change risks? Um, even if we were not to look at great catastrophes that are perhaps on the brink and as scientists say we're on a tipping point by 2030, things go down the line we'll keep seeing much more extreme events that will cause great amount of stress in society on land and resources. Even if we were not to go that far and we were to look at the moderate range and the slow burning changes that will happen, 
I think climate change exacerbates for developing nations particularly climate change exacerbates all the stresses and strains of malgovernance and complexities that exist in the first place it enhances the fallout of inequities existing inequities in societies it makes existing imbalances the consequences of existing imbalances even worse for those who are economically socially culturally on a lower footing than others in the society and therefore it will make for the state the navigation the modulation of these contests much more difficult as these contests get more extreme more frequent and more entrenched in a fashion that we've not seen before see let me give you an example which is closer to my heart and personal life the worlds that i come from live along the hills i've seen as climate change increases average temperatures in these hills which are long so lands along a gradient that what people are growing at foothills begins to move uphill because the temperatures are getting warmer what used to grow uphill is going further up so say in an area which is uh, a dear friend's place in arunachal called sherkaon just below that in the tawang valley area western arunachal we see that the orchid sanctuaries are moving up this is a orchid sanctuary that which is moving up the orchid sanctuary space is being taken over marginally by farmers who now see that they can grow potato in that area because it's become amenable to it now the state's own logic of what is what was an orchid sanctuary which is a protected zone under one land law is actually physically moved it's now become an agriculture space for the community who are responding to real circumstances where the law is stuck back in where it imagined the space to be and this is the most benign example i can give of how even if i was to look at from government's perspective just understanding how these laws will respond to the changes and very rapid and more intense changes in the relationship between resource extraction citizenry and land it would become immensely difficult there are many other layers i can point out bhargavi one is the indian government's response to climate change one of the responses has been that it believes that growing a large number of plantations in indian lands presuming there are a lot of wastelands and we know they are not but in indian systems as namita will tell you a lot of these marginal productive lands or lands indirectly used much more by less powerful communities are categorized as wastelands the government believes by growing forests on these lands which are empty wastelands it will be able to achieve certain percentage of its targets on reducing emissions now to me that's creating a second layer of conflict that never existed to begin with so the solution to climate change will in india's case and in many other developing world actually cause and exacerbate existing stresses on land resources and the relationship between the poor and marginal communities with their resources the nature of your economic activity linked to land would come under a complete slow burning alteration that your land laws will not be able to address your governance would be half blind to and the worst consequences of this would be people who i might say live on ecological borders in the country people who live on edges of course people who live on gradients people who live on the edges of uh, where two different ecological systems meet there you will see these transitions these stresses play out physically more apparent others will also suffer when these cases we'll see people on ecological edges needing to readjust shift their relation to land physically shift at times and there is this large debate about climate change induced migration across geographies while it still remains 
to a great extent a theoretical correct framework and we still ha- don't have a terminology to figure out how to segregate this from economic distress related migrations these things tend to change the nature of governments and the nature of countries itself okay so i believe that actually when you're faced with a problem you will figure out a way to deal with it but i see i kind of see when namita and even parts of your conversation where they're coming from which is that you know in our response the longer we take to respond actually the people who are already suffering suffer the most and i don't know if there is ever a way to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen but we will end here and uh, before we end the episode i want to ask both of you you all have been working in this field for a really long time and uh, really illustrious work that very very few people in india frankly have been able to put together since the theme of the podcast is land of a billion if you were to put your remaining energy and i'm sure there's lots of it but you know uh, your enthusiasm your energy and your weight behind one reform that you think will secure land rights for a billion plus population in india what would it be let's start with namita i was saying that the the question you've asked uh, you know land of a billion itself uh, there in itself lies the answer i think the first thing is to recognize how central land is to each one of those billion people the one reform that i want to suggest is not something that can be done through passing a law or a policy but rather a shift in consciousness a realization because as you know nitin's response to your question showed is that we've sort of looked at we've tended to look at land water forests and uh, other resources as commodities as if we are separate from them you know and and that we can use them for our various purposes and that has brought us to the brink of overuse over exploitation of every single resource that exists so i think the big reform or the big shift i think has to be a shift in consciousness and i think to some extent it is beginning to happen i think it happens it needs to happen in in a very big way and that that's where i think the the centrality of land uh, to our environment to our uh, community history identity culture needs to be understood that it's not a commodity it's not an, just an economic resource and you know that is why the adivasi understanding of land where where land water forest is part of jal jungle zameen is part of one indivisible ecosystem we would really benefit if we were to sort of imbibe that understanding in the way we think of our economic development projects the other thing i would like to say if i may is that i think we need to go refocus our lens on land as a as a tool of social justice rather than as a tool for the markets because i think unless we do that uh, some of the the effects that we are talking about are probably going to worsen because the whole idea of markets is that it is operating on an economic assumption but as we've realized that land is not just an economic resource it's part of an indivisible ecosystem so if we just leave it to markets and deregulation and so on i think we are going to have more pernicious consequences than if we were to look at land as in a holistic setting as part of an ecosystem and and as integral to the lives of the people and as a tool for social justice and uh, social equity got it so nitin what about you one you have to pick one reform okay and no you know no i'm going to force you this time you have to be specific in that reform absolutely that's the challenge this once i can actually respond very quickly to this i think all of us at land conflict watch my uh, colleagues both lawyers researchers and writers believe that one land reform that we would want to work towards whatever little we can contribute to is to seeing better tenureal handling of tenureal rights and uh, access to commons lands for people who are dependent on commons uh, both in peri urban areas and in rural forested areas i think 
this is particularly important, we think, at a time when a sense of demarcation of lands, of rights of people over property is being forwarded both through technological advances and administrative changes. The one space which will impact the most number of people is what's generically called commons and common lands. We have one of the most complicated, the most regressive management of these spaces, which really is what more than 400 to 500 million people are dependent upon directly and indirectly for their basic livelihoods, nothing more. And to see a tenurial regime, a regime that acknowledges, legalizes and accepts how these lands are used by marginal communities for us, that I think is the biggest reform that would really change the nature of our economy, unlock economic advantages that have been denied to a large segment of our society, provide them, as you said, that one base key factor of production that allows them to find their own value in society and unlock their society, which I think economically we've kept them in slavery by denying them those rights. To us at LCW, I think that is the one reform I can quickly say is what we look forward to and we want to work towards. Fantastic. So thanks, uh, Namita and Nitin. Uh, I think really good conversation and I hope you enjoyed it as well. And I hope our listeners enjoy listening to this as well. Thank you so much, Bhargavi, for having us. Thank you, Bhargavi. Thank you, Nitin, for being a part of this conversation. Thanks for tuning in to our podcast, Land of a Billion, produced in association with the Property Rights Research Consortium. Don't forget to catch new episodes every alternate Friday, where I will bring you a rundown on the latest charcha around land and housing in India. Thanks for listening. Log on to the Quince website and check out our other podcasts. 